Bluffton. Uh, we are excited and glad to be here and thankful to all of you for receiving us very warmly. If you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 25. Uh, that's on page 586 in your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along there. And I urge you to do that, uh, to follow along with me, because I'll be pointing out uh, parts of the scriptures that we need to see and be encouraged by. Utopia. Every heart on the face of this earth longs for it. Utopia. A life without pain, disease, death, or division. Utopia. A life of constant interrupt, uninterrupted joy and delights. The question today, is there such a thing? Is there a utopia ahead of us? And right behind that is how or who. How will we get there? What will it look like? Today I want to lift our eyes as we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth as Isaiah, uh, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, lifts the eyes of the original audience and hopefully ours to see that there is one ahead for the people of God. Let's read together Isaiah chapter 25, 1 through 12. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. You have done wonderful things, plans formed of old faithful and sure, for you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's place is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you, for you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against the wall. Like the heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain of the Lord of hosts will, will make for all the peoples a, rich, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation, for the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. And Moab will be trampled down in his place, as a straw is trampled down on a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. In the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. This is God's word, the grass withers. The flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray together. O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, stir us up through your word. Feed us as your sheep. Help us to see the glory that is all about you, namely in Christ. Display for us your glory. Interrupt our lives with the radiance of hope in you. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God, my rock and my redeemer. 
We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus, our only hope, and all God's people say, Amen. In 2009, director James Cameron became a household name for his movie Avatar. The movie centers around a paraplegic marine, Jake Scully, who visits the world of Pandora through his avatar. This world of Pandora was a world of beauty and delights. It was wonderful to be in. New York Times writer Manhola Dargas says this, Few films films return us to the lost world of our first cinematic experiences, to that magical moment when movies really were bigger than life. If only we were children. Movies rarely carry us away, few even try. They entertain and instruct and sometimes enlighten. Some attempt to overwhelm us, but their efforts are usually a matter of volume. What's often missing, and listen to this, is awe. Something Mr. Cameron has, after an absence from Hollywood, returned to the screen with a vengeance. He hasn't changed cinema, but with blue people and pink blooms, he has confirmed its wonder. So awe and wonder there. And I remember seeing this film and reading articles after seeing this film about people being so depressed because they would get in the film and and experience the awe and wonder and then walk out into real life and experience dystopia, the chaos, the evil that often plagues every person on this planet. They were faced with the stark reality that they do not live in Pandora or Utopia. Likewise, for us, we're people who long for true hope. Even in this moment of our lives, we're so busy. We've got so many things going on. We've got to get our kids ready for school, get in the routine. There's all kinds of programs they're involved with, and we can keep our head down and and walk, 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 and forget to lift our eyes and, and, and experience the hope that we have or remember the hope that we have in the glorious gospel of redemption, that big, grand story of reality, of creation, the rebellion of man, the redemption of Christ, and the restoration of all things. This is what Isaiah is lifting our eyes to. Here's our main point today. The Christian God from eternity past has planned to bring his people into the utopia of all utopias, the new heavens and the new earth. The Christian God is planning, has planned to bring us his people, into the new heavens and new earth. And that is the utopia we long for, we're looking for, and we're moving toward in Christ. Our Lord Jesus, the King of all creation, is the head of the church. He has created all things. They were created for him, and he holds all things together. And he will renew all things. How do we see this here in the passage? Well, you may have seen it when we read it. But Isaiah gives this future vision of judgment and deliverance in three ways. First is God will overthrow tyranny, verses 1 through 5. Second, God will overthrow death, verses 6 through 9. And lastly, God will overthrow human pride in 10 through 12. Let's look at tyranny. Verses 1 through 5 is Isaiah's song to the Lord. It's a personal song to God for deliverance. As you see in verse 1, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. You've done wonderful things. So he is, he is caught up. He is exalting the God of heaven and earth, saying, you have done great things. What are these great things that God has done? Well, it begins with, ironically, the city is a heap. The fortified city is a ruin. Well, how is that good news? You may think, well, Isaiah just was was in glorious praise, and now he's talking about the city being a heap. What is he saying? 
Well, this is not merely Jerusalem that he's in, but the entire world. What he's saying is that there's two cities. There's two seeds from all of creation, especially from the fall. There's the, the city of non-belief or unbelief of this earthly world that only lives life under the sun, and then there's a city of God who is full of belief, those who trust in him and rest in him. St. Augustine, in his classic work, The City of God, states this, The earthly city glories in itself. The heavenly city glories in the Lord. And that was his whole thrust of that great work, the city of God, was there's a heavenly city and there's an earthly city. And what he means by that is belief and unbelief. In fact, this is what we see in chapters 24 and 25. You should see these as couplets. And I didn't read 24, but I want you to turn back with me and look there to page uh, 585, if you're using your pre-Bible. I want you to see the descriptors of God's judgment on the city of human unbelief and the tyranny of the ruthless. Verse 1 of chapter 24, it says it's empty, desolate, and he's going to scatter, meaning isolation. There's going to be isolation. Verse 2, there's chaos. There's no structure anymore. Everything's chaotic. There's no leadership, and no one's leading. No one wants to lead. Verse 4, there's mourning, languishing, and withering. Down in verse 10, it says it's broken down. Verse 11, it gets worse. Joy has gone dark. There's no gladness. Verse 17, terror, the pit, and the snare. Verse 21, punishment. Verse 22, it results in prisoners being in a pit. This is a description of the city of man. In the end, if you don't trust the Lord, this is what you're, it's going to result in your life. Why? Look at verse 5 of chapter 24. I want to read that. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. What this is essentially saying is that the, the people who turn their backs to God, who say, no, I will be Lord of my life, this is what happens in the end. To illustrate it, it's as if a fish in a fishbowl says, No, I know better. Put me out on the kitchen counter. I want to live there without boundaries, without restraint. You don't know what's best for me. But would that be good? No. In fact, it's more like a fish wanting to be take a walk in the desert. This is what happens with your life when you turn from God, His laws, His instruction, and especially His gospel. There is no life. It's darkness, gloom, and lack of flourishing and judgment. God takes unbelief very seriously, and I encourage you, if you're here today, God is calling you to a full faith in His Lordship. He is Lord of all creation, and He's calling you to make Him Lord in your life. You you can't keep Jesus at a stiff arm. You can't portion off a portion of your life in a box and act like you can Lord this part, and Jesus is over here, and He can take the rest. No, He demands all your life. Every bit of it. Every square inch of your life. A life without God is futile, frustrating, and will ultimately result in eternal separation from all the goodness of God, which is what we call hell. Yet, as we see in in verses 3 through 5 of chapter 25, back over to chapter 25, God does extend mercy to those who follow him. God is a protector of the poor. He's a shelter to the needy and defenseless. 
And in verse 5, he drowns out the song of the ruthless. Now, you may not have somebody in your, your life, a ruthless enemy, but as our theme has stated today, we have enemies. The scriptures actually say we war not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of the air. We have enemies who are seeking to still kill and destroy our faith. And what this is saying is that God shelters his people. He shelters us because we are defenseless whether we know it or not. What came to mind this week is Colossians 1.13, and Rusty's alluded to it already, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Friends, we have in the Christian faith a God who deals with evil by taking evil on himself through the cross of Christ. This story, the Christian story, the Christian belief is like no other religion or worldview. It says its God is high lifted up. Our God is high lifted up. Yet he came down and took evil upon himself and actually took evil to task through the cross and the resurrection. Delivers us from evil. If you're a skeptic today, I would ask you humbly, do you have a better answer for evil? Its presence in this life its pervasiveness throughout the world, how will it be dealt with in your worldview? How does your worldview answer why does evil exist and what will happen to evil? Will justice be accomplished in the end? When Jesus Christ returns, you want to be on his side, living in the city of belief, not the city of unbelief. God has taken evil to task and will vanquish evil from this earth forever, which leads to our second point. God will overthrow death. Look at verses 6 through 9. Here we see a beautiful vision of God's utopia, which will be ours through faith. This mountain, Isaiah says, on this mountain. And what that refers to, this language, is a language of restoration, of worship. Bringing the whole earth to a restoration and a sense of worship, a caught up awe and wonder of this great God who does great things and wondrous things. It's also an echo of Mount Sinai, which was the locus of God's presence after deliverance from Egypt. But it's more than that. It's more than Mount Sinai. Actually, we have a better mountain than Mount Sinai. Listen to the words of Hebrews 12. The writer says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood It speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And what this is also speaking of is that great mountain in the future, the mountain of worship, which is when all the earth is gathered to God. Aside from worship, what else will happen on this mountain of God? A feast. Do you see it? There's a feast. We got a party waiting for us. Did you know that? As Christians, we have a party coming. And I'm excited about that. So should we. What is this feast? It says rich food twice 
well-aged wine twice, a rich food, filet mignon, baked potatoes, Caesar salad, red velvet cake and ice cream, all low-fat, but tastes like the real thing, you know? No gluttony or obesity. Well-aged wine, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Merlot, Cabernet, and IPA. Maybe Cherry Coke and Dr. Pepper if you don't like those things. And guess what? No drunkenness. No addiction. Wow! I can't wait. This is what God is doing. Not only that, God is going to remove the covering or the veil, which I take to mean remove the curse that veils us to the glory of God. As Rusty said earlier, we're going to see the glory of God. The end of chapter 4, it says, when God's glory is, is made manifest, even the, the moon and the sun will shrink back because His glory is going to be so much more brighter, more beautiful than even the sun or the moon. Creation and God's people will be released to enjoy the earth and God's presence even more than the Garden of Eden. I don't want to stop right there. If you think that heaven is us being spirits floating on a cloud with harps and bows. That is not the picture of heaven that the Bible gives. The picture of heaven is an earthy heaven. And the direction of God is always downward. If you read Revelation 21, the new, the new Jerusalem comes down and God dwells with man on earth. So in conjecture, I wonder what Dothan is going to be like in the new earth. I wonder what boiled peanuts will taste like in the new earth. I wonder. Listen, God is a creator. There has been a, 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 a rupture in the creation. But God doesn't take it and throw it away. He restores it. That's the, that's the beauty of our God. He is restoring creation. We will live on this earth and explore it without threat of disease and death and famine and on and on and on. Not only that, verse 8 is very precious to us. God will overthrow death once and for all. I love 16th century Anglican minister and poet John Donne's sonnet 10, often called Death Be Not Proud. It's written in light of 1 Corinthians 15, 26, which states that last enemy to be destroyed is death. And I want to read the last half of this poem. As soonest our best men with thee do go, speaking of death, Rest of their bones and souls delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men. Thou dost with poison, war, and sickness dwell. And poppy or charms can make us sleep as well. And better than thy stroke, why swellest thou then? One short sleep past, we wake eternally. And death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. The death of death and and the death of Christ and the resurrection. He has dealt with death. The last enemy, we we will not only have a feast, we're going to have a reunion feast with those who are of belief. And that is what we look forward to as well. Not only a reunion with God, but with His people. A celebration that is joyous and loud as Isaiah started off this chapter. Death will die. We will live on a renewed earth with absolute peace, harmony, and joy. What else? What else does God promise? Verse 8, God will wipe away our tears. This is restated in Revelation twice. Listen to 717. For the Lamb will be in the midst of the throne. He will be their shepherd, 
and he will guide them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 21.4 He will wipe away every tear from, the eye, from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Added to that, it says, He will remove our reproach, which in modern language is our shame. He will take away all the shame that shrinks us back, all the shame that we hear in our minds and our hearts. He's going to remove it, and we're going to be free to enjoy what He's given us. Amen? Notice the totality of God's work. For emphasis, Isaiah uses the word all five times in this little section, six through nine. All people, all the earth, all, all, all. You see, the gospel does start with God's people and saving us from Satan's tyranny. But it also is a cosmic gospel in which all of creation would be restored even better than its first good place. I encourage you today, saints of God, whatever you're facing, the evil that plagues you today or has this week, from within and from without, look up. There is hope for your future. We all have a future hope. We all have a future utopia that surrounds itself around God's throne. As verse 9 says, wait for Him. Keep waiting on the Lord. Keep seeking His face. Keep saying, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Now, briefly to the last point, God overthrows human pride in verses 10 through 12. It's a warning to all of us. What is the height of human pride? With shaking a fist at God and saying, I got this. I got this. It's the same temptation and lie that we saw in the Garden of Eden. Oh, you can disobey. Just reach for the fruit. Take, take it. It's good. Take your life into control and do your own thing. Be your own Lord, your own God. That is, that is what was happening in the garden. The overreaching. The desire to live as a fish out of water. Pride says, I don't need God. I can build my own city or my own utopia. As Stephen was saying earlier, this lie is clearly seen in our culture. Let me give an example. You folks of the 60s, you know the song Imagine by John Lennon. Listen to these words. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us is only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. No religion too. Did you hear that? No religion too? Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. The worldview here is advocating a utopia without God. A utopia where there's no heaven and no earth and no religion. Nothing, nothing but us. A man-made humanistic reach for utopia. And in the end, it comes to nothing. Friends, there is a heaven and a hell. There is a God. He created all things. And one day will bring judgment and restoration. 
One day we will see the heights of his mercy and the heights of his justice all played out. Here's the truth. A utopia without God is really a dystopia of chaos and darkness. Let me say it again. A utopia without God is really a dystopia, a life of chaos and darkness. And that is what hell will be, is a life without any goodness. It's like a prison without any jailers, any order. Verse 11 says that God will, in the end, lay low man's pompous pride that seeks, like the builders of the Tower of Babel, to make a name for themselves without any regard for God and who He is. So what? So what? You may ask. I want to encourage you, if you're a Christian today, look up and look ahead. Your life may be hard right now. It probably is. We all face trials and temptations and hurts and pains. But look ahead. There is hope for you in Christ. There is hope for us all in Christ ahead for us. I encourage you to read, to study, to ponder the great story of redemption, creation, rebellion, and restoration. Those four panels. God created the earth as good. The earth was stained by the rebellion of sin of man. God came down. He inhabited a body. He was 100% God, 100% man in Christ Jesus. And he will return to face death and evil and, and exclude evil from all the earth once and for all. If you're a skeptic today, you're not sure that God exists, please hear this warning and encouragement. God does offer you utopia. He offers you utopia through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the knowledge of Christ. Come to Him, know Him, seek Him, and be found. And you too can have that future hope that is rooted and grounded in the character of the eternal God. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we need, we need you. We need recharging. We need encouragement. We need our heads lifted to see that we have hope. I pray that you would do that for us as a body as we move on in the times between the times, in the now but not yet, as we experience the first fruits of your kingdom but not yet the orchard. I pray, Father, that you would strengthen us. And Lord, if there are those who don't believe this morning, may they be encouraged to embrace you, the King of glory, the King of grace, the King of love. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I want to invite you to please stand again together and take your hymnals. We'll turn to hymn number 180 and we'll sing our hymn of response which is just verse 1 and verse 5 of I Will Sing the Wonder Story.